everywhere was about love and joy and peace. But what she mostly felt was sadness and anxiety. She was only a little girl, but it just didn't ring true. I stopped believing in my teenage years, she said to me, matter-of-factly. And I've dreaded Christmas ever since. Now, not all of us struggle with Christmas quite that intensely. On the other hand, I think many of us would have to say we, we do experience it as something of a mixed blessing, don't we? I was reading a recent uh, magazine article in uh, Psychology Today, and it says that something like about 45% of us have negative feelings about Christmas. And I, I found myself wondering, what's up with that? What's the deal with this strange, bipolar, manic, depressive season we call the Christmas holiday? With that question in mind, uh, I'd like to share with you three thoughts that, about Christmas that come from the prophet Isaiah. If you'll turn to the scripture on the back of your worship guide this afternoon, you'll find the three passages highlighted in bold print. And uh, I'd like to ask you to join with me in reading the first of those. It's first two, and it's in that uh, white, bold print. Would you join me and read, please? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I want you to notice a couple of things about that passage. The first thing I want you to notice is uh, the, there are two phrases here. One of them is the walking in darkness phrase. Do you see that? The people walking in darkness. Uh, that's their inner experience. Uh, these are people who feel dark inside. That's the way they're, they're living. And then the second phrase that's in this passage, uh, you see it there? It says, on those living in the land of the shadow of death. Remember Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's the same phrase that's used here. This is their outer experience. Their inner and their outer experience in this book of Isaiah. You see, Isaiah was describing one of the most devastating times in the history of the nation of Israel when he was writing this passage. It was known as the Assyrian invasion. And the Assyrians were something like a virtual military machine. They were ruthless, they were cruel in their onslaught, and they had literally overtaken the land of Israel. It was the Assyrians who, by the way, may have introduced the, pro the process of crucifying people into the land of Israel. They were one of the first countries to do that. But what we know for sure about the Assyrians is that when they would take over a country... They meant business, and they would start to deport people to other parts of the world so they wouldn't have to fight rebellion. This is the darkness and the gloom that Isaiah is talking about in this particular passage. Isaiah's starting point when he talks about Christmas then is this. Christmas begins very often in a dark place. People lose jobs, don't they? Even around Christmas time. Loved ones die, don't they? Even during Christmas time. Marriages fail, don't they? And we feel the hurt even at Christmas time. Families are broken, aren't they? Even at Christmas time. 
Lives can go wrong in a hundred different ways. And the Bible, the prophet Isaiah, does not deny that. Even at Christmas time. That's one part of the reality here. But I want you to take a look at the second thing. You'll see it back up there in verse 1 at the top. You see that big word, the first word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, something is going to happen. There's darkness, there's gloom, things go wrong. It happens at Christmas. Nevertheless is the Christmas message. And here we have a little bit of a translation difficulty, and I wouldn't introduce it to you, but it really makes sort of an important point. You see, there are no verbs in the Hebrew text here at this point, and so this first translation, this first verse could be translated, nevertheless, no gloom in distress. In other words, we can go through this distress and not feel the gloom of the distress we're going through. That's one possible way of looking at that text. And it's true, isn't it? That's true. That's true, isn't it? There's a well-known illustration of that. A little poem I see on some of the plaques and the walls of the houses I visit. It's entitled Footprints in the Sand. And it was written by a lady whose name is Mary Stevenson. I don't know if you know her background, but Mary Stevenson grew up in the Great Depression. She had a very abusive husband. In fact, she had to run away from home at one point. And because she ran away from home and because that was a different kind of culture, her children were taken away from her. Mary Stevenson was a Christian. And so she didn't know how to handle that. And it all came to her one night in 1936, and she wrote this kind of a poem. One night she says, I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord, as scenes from my life flashed before me. In each scene I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times, it seems like when I was most struggling from anguish or sorrow or defeat, I could only see one set. Of footprints. And, and, and this puzzled me. It bothered me. So I said, Lord, didn't you promise that if I followed you, you would walk with me always? So why is it that during the trying periods of my life, there has always been only one set of footprints? Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there? And you know how the plaque ends, don't you? Jesus simply turns to her and replies, you know what? Those times when you saw only one set of print footprints, those were the times I was carrying you. Now that's part of Isaiah's point here. That's part of his point. God goes with us into our darkness, and he turns that darkness into light. No gloom, he says, in distress. No gloom. In distress. That's a part of the meaning of Christmas. Christmas means that if we trust Jesus, we can discover that whatever the distress is, there's no gloom there. Now, that's one way to translate this passage, but probably the better translation that picks up the fuller meaning includes the verbs, and you see it there in verse 2. It says, uh, in verse 1, it says, There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. And that's true too. 
Not only is it true that there is no gloom, it's true that sometimes God removes the gloom that we have. He heals us. He changes us. He, 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 he uh, makes those marriages work. He, he brings things to come. to. Sometimes God does work that way. Not only that way, but, but much, much more. I want you to look carefully at what these verses say. If you look carefully, there's a, there's a reversal that happens here. It's, notice that there's a gloom and a distress and a humbling and then honor. And notice that there's a darkness and a shadow of death in verse 2. And then light. Some of you have seen that movie, The Lord of the Rings. Remember the statement that Sam Ganji makes when he discovers that one of his friends is alive. He says, I thought you were dead. And then he adds, Is everything sad going to come untrue? Isaiah says, yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And not only that, Isaiah says, but things will be better for those because they have been broken and because we have been lost. One Christian writer dares to put it this way. He says, some people will say of some suffering or disaster, nothing could ever make up for this tragedy in my life. And this writer says what they don't understand, what they don't get about Isaiah's message is that God's plan will someday work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. So the first thing I think Isaiah wants to tell us about Christmas is this. I'll just say it right out loud. Darkness is a fact, but so is God's light. At present, both exist side by side. Darkness, light, light, darkness. The message of Christmas isn't that one is true and the other one isn't. It's that God's light is available even in our darkness and that in spite of every darkness, God's light will eventually win. Do you see it there? Do you see it in that verse? Now some of you are saying, well, you know, Jim, I don't see anything about Christmas here yet. Why are you bringing Christmas into this whole picture? The passage doesn't seem to be talking about Christmas at all. Well, that brings me to my second point. And now will you read that next set of bold verses with me down in verses 6 and 7? Reading, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, as soon as we've read those verses, you say, Aha, I get it. How, how could we miss it? It's all a reference to Jesus. It's all a reference to Christmas. You see it there. We're talking about a son that's been born. We're talking about a son that's been given to us. Well, that's obviously Jesus. We just, we just read the story. We're reading about all these marvelous pictures of, of descriptions of giving him. He is the wonderful counselor, isn't he? We've all heard Handel's Messiah. It's Jesus, obviously, isn't it? Well, not so obviously. You see, when these verses were written, nobody knew to whom they referred. The early people that studied the Old Testament said, Who is this child? 
And for 700 years, they didn't know. The early people who read the Old Testament, who is this son, this wonderful counselor that all these stories are true of? Who is this child? And nobody knew until Jesus came. And once he came, it was like that, aha, I get it. I see it. It all makes sense now. And I think Christmas is just like that. Christmas is just like Isaiah's prophecy. It won't make sense. It can't make sense without Jesus. Take Jesus out of Christmas or try to substitute something else, and you always come up thinking, what is this all about anyway? Put Jesus back in Christmas, and it starts to come together. One of my favorite writers is C.S. Lewis, and in his book, Mere Christianity, he explains the reason for that. He says it goes like this. He says, normally our desires are indications that satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby, for example, feels hungry. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. People long for love. Well, there's such a thing as love. So, if I find in myself, Lewis says, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, and oh, by the way, we all do, no present, no marriage, no Christmas, no job, no anything is ever completely satisfying in this world. And if we find that's true, Lewis says, wouldn't it seem reasonable to conclude that I must be made for another world? If that is so, he says, I must never despise or be unthankful for the earthly things that God has given me, the marriages and the jobs and the homes and the Christmases. But on the other hand, I shouldn't mistake them for the something of else of which they are only a pointer. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I don't know what you're looking for, where you're looking for the meaning of Christmas this year. I'm guessing that for some of you it has to do with family. I'm guessing for some of you it has to do with past good memories. I'm guessing that some of you are looking for, you know, those really good, neat, exceptional gifts. For some of you it may just be celebrating with close friends. I'm guessing that the list is probably as diverse as the people in this room. And you know what? None of those things are bad. And it's not that they aren't even partially fulfilling. I mean, they are. They do partially fulfill us. But none of them, none of them can bear the burden of Christmas. Sooner or later, they all break down. According to Isaiah, the substance, the object, the reality of all the best elements to which they point... It's Jesus, that exceptional thing. He's the foundation upon which Christmas rests. 
He's the piece of the puzzle that makes sense of it. Without Jesus, Christmas will always and ultimately be disappointing. That's the second thing I think Isaiah says in this passage. But Isaiah also tells us a third thing, and I want to read that last phrase here real quickly. Would you join me in reading it? It's right down there at the bottom. Read it with me. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Christmas is about God's zeal. Now, I just have to tell you, that's not a good word today, is it? When we hear the word zeal, we think of zealot, and that has negative overtones. Or it could be translated God's jealousy, but jealousy also has negative overtones in our language today. So probably it means something like his absolute, unshakable, chasing after us kind of love. What in the world then does this verse mean? Well, John Ortberg has written a book called uh, The Life You've Always Wanted. And in that book, he tells the story that I think helps us out. It says, some time ago, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I could see quite clearly in our bedroom because moonlight was streaming through the window. I looked at my wife, Nancy. She was sleeping beside me, and suddenly I was overwhelmed by this intense sense of love. It was as if our entire married life flashed before me, in one kaleidoscopic viewing. One scene after another replayed in my mind. The afternoon we met, our first private joke, the first time we ever laughed really hard together, the way she smiled at me when she walked down the aisle at our wedding. I thought how empty my life would be without Nancy. And for the longest time, I just watched my wife as she slept. It was one of the most tender moments I've ever known. And then something else happened that I just wasn't expecting. As I watched Nancy sleep, it occurred to me that God watches when I'm sleeping in exactly the same way. And the thought came to me that he was saying to me something like this. John... I love you just like you love Nancy. And while you lay sleeping, I watch you. My heart is full of love for you. What your heart is feeling right now as you watch your wife is a little picture, a gift, so that you can know every night when you go to sleep that this is my heart for you. I want you to reflect on this night before you close your eyes. I'm watching you, and I'm full of love for you. My wife, Holly, uh, has a note in her Bible that takes this thought a little bit further. I love it. It says, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, ladies, he's willing to listen. He could live anywhere in the universe, but he chose to live in your heart. And what about that Christmas gift he sent you in Bethlehem? Not to mention that Friday on good, uh, at Calvary on the cross. 
face it. He's crazy about you. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. Okay then. Tomorrow's Christmas, and I think we need to admit it. Christmas can be a very, very mixed bag. A lot of good things are going to happen tomorrow at Christmas. But some not-so-good things, no doubt some downright wicked things, are going to happen too. So what does that mean? That Christmas is a sham? That the coming of Jesus has no value? Not at all. According to Isaiah, the day Christians traditionally celebrate as Christmas is designed to remind us of three things. It's to remind us that God loves us. He loves you. He really does. More than anything in the world, He wants you to receive His very best. Not second best, not what you and I think is best, but His absolute loving best. Second, Christmas is also a reminder that our Father in Heaven has given us His Son to show us the depth of His love. It's like the illustration I once heard about the woman who asked, Lord, how much do you love me? And He said, this much, and stretched out His arms and died. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? If you can, Isaiah's third reminder, which is actually a promise, is that God's light is available to you even now, even in your darkness, whatever that darkness might be, and that in spite of every darkness, however dark it may be, ultimately, the light will win, and you'll never, ever have to be sad again that's Christmas I want to give you a gift this afternoon there's a prayer that we've been using in our church for Christmas programs and the like and I want to share this prayer with you we're going to read it together if you don't mind for some of you you've already done this and so this is sort of a recommitment for some of you perhaps you have not done this before and so maybe this is a first chance for you to commit yourself to Jesus to give him a gift of yourself this Christmas holiday. Would you read this prayer with me as we close? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to earth as a baby so many years ago. Thank you that he paid the punishment for my sins by dying on the cross. And thank you that he rose again to prove that death was truly defeated. I place my trust in you to be my Savior. Guide me through the dark times of my life and give me the courage to live for you. Amen and amen.